So one of the things we heard from the women we interviewed was, I don't know when they're trying to sell me a product or when they're trying to give me advice that helps me. And then the other thing we heard was, there's so much out there. I don't know where to begin. And I don't know how it applies to me because there's always caveats. There's, you know, there's like this huge legal thing that says, you know, these are the not, it's not investment. It's not advice basically. And then um, you can't use it in certain scenarios. So what we do is we use your own numbers. And so we can tell you exactly what scenarios it works for, for you and when it doesn't work for you. Hey, Christine, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, you, you were, uh, you know, before we even started, you were already teaching me stuff about uh, what, what, you're, what you're up to. So, um, Christine, can you, let's start off first with the uh, introduction on, on what you do. Uh, can you tell us a little yeah. bit more about Untangle, Untangle Money? Sure. Um, Untangle Money, uh, we are a fintech startup. We are focused on women. Mm-hmm. We feel that, um, we actually feel that, Canadians in general are underserved by the financial services industry, especially those Canadians that are relying on bank branch services. But the main um, the main pain point is for women. They feel less welcome by the industry. And I'll dive into some reasons why their financial lives are different, which is something that not a lot of people are talking about. And what we're trying to do is answer the questions, which are, can I afford it? And will I be okay in the future? Those are the two most asked questions by women about their money. Um, so that's what we're answering with. A, and we want to do that through an app that allows you to um, go through it in a self-paced manner. Um, and by not sitting with someone, perhaps it won't be as embarrassing. And also, um, we can make it much cheaper that way. So we can make it much more accessible to people. Uh, I mean, I love that because, um, you know, we, we have such a need for financial knowledge. Um, mm-hmm. You know, being, being a millennial, we weren't taught any of that stuff growing up. No. You know, and, uh, you know, we just uh, finished, a, I just finished a podcast recently about this where we talked about how, you know, we're kind of left in the dark. Like, as an adult, you're kind of like thrown to the wind to figure this kind of stuff yeah. out to yourself. And, yeah. you know, I was, we were taught like trigonometry and like, you know, all these like uh, all these physics and laws and all these kind of things. But I don't know how the actual world works that we live in. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of insane, you know. And so, yeah, yeah, it's not linked to intelligence. Like my background mm-hmm. in undergrad, I did engineering physics. So I did a lot of trigonometry and these kind of things. But it still didn't prepare me for weeding through thousands of blog posts on how to manage your money. It just there's so many places out there. Mm-hmm. We don't actually handle your money. We just we look, we take a snapshot of where you are today. We project that into the future. And then we say, you know, what is it that you need? What does it look like getting there? What, what's the monthly cost? And then we look at, well, let's say, so we, our baseline is with a four and a half percent rate of return. And so we say in real time, what happens if that's now 6%? And what that teaches people and what that enables people to do is understand what they are willing to vary and what they're comfortable varying in order to get a certain output. Whereas I think traditionally you get one output, which is, you know, either a financial calculator online, here's how much money you need, but it never ties back to your budget to show you if you can afford that. Um, it, usually there's not as much you can play around with in real time. So that's, um, that's something that we're doing, which people seem to really like. 
Yeah, I mean, before we jump into that, I mean, I want to dive a little bit more into like uh, financial knowledge and acquiring it. And uh, I think this is so important because most people are not taught to learn. They're just taught to regurgitate, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it's very hard for them to learn new skills or, learn, or upskill or to like uh, obtain new knowledge. And, yeah, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, I, I realized when I was in university was that, you know, each of these courses are like $500 a pop if you want to be part of a program. There's nothing stopping you from just walking into like a Management 101 course or an Econ 101 and just checking it out and just sitting yeah. there and getting this for free. So one of the things I would love to do is like, yo, this is kind of free. Why not just jump in a, cor- a classroom and see what's going on? <laughs> sort of and, audit it. Yeah. But like, you know, years later, all this stuff is out on YouTube, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Virginia's uh, Virginia Law School's first year program is all on YouTube. Um, really? Harvard's um, econ programs all on YouTube, right? Like this is world class people. Like I, I think Harvard had um, the former head of Morgan Stanley coming in and, and running a guest class, and the entire class is now available. And it's like the acquisition of knowledge. You know, it's it's now become more liberated. You don't have to pay yeah. this huge paywall to get into an institution to get it, right? Yeah. Well, the problem. Doing, with, yeah, go ahead. Or sorry, I was gonna say I did the Yale one on happiness. Mm. It was I highly recommend it. Yeah, uh, for me, I mean, one of the one of the coolest things was like back in like 2015, 2016, I was switching into sales, uh, but selling selling and consulting to the uh, the financial institutions, right? Yeah. To uh, fi- family offices, to um, uh, to VCs, things like that. I'm like, what is a VC? Like, what are they? What are they really like? <laughs> You know, and you can go on YouTube and see all these different things, right? Like, uh, I found this great show on Bloomberg where it had like the head of one of the biggest investment firms interviewing yeah. other heads of in- investment firms, and they're talking like they're in an old boys club about like how things really, you know, how they really think about things using terminologies. Yeah. And yeah. you can sit there and just digest this stuff. Yes. You know, so in a world where all this knowledge is now free, you know, the the skill, real skills that you need to learn is being able to learn or being inspired to learn. Well, one of the things that we found that was a problem, because, frankly, all of the information you need to know about personal finance is out there. Um, It really is. It's knowing how to find trusted advice. So one of the things we heard from the women we interviewed was, I don't know when they're trying to sell me a product or when they're trying to give me advice that helps me. And then the other thing we heard was, there's so much out there. I don't know where to begin. And I don't know how it applies to me because there's always caveats. There's, you know, there's like this huge legal thing that says, you know, these are not, it's not investment. It's not advice basically. And then um, you can't use it in certain scenarios. So what we do is we use your own numbers. And so we can tell you exactly what scenarios it works for, for you and when it doesn't work for you, which makes it powerful because you're not reading a blog trying to determine if the person who wrote the blog knows what they're talking about. I guess you do have to hope that we know what we're talking about. Um, And then you're not trying to say, well, am I in the right tax bracket? Is this a case? Like, am I the right age? Because very much the advice can be um, different depending on what stage of life you're at. Yeah. I mean, I really like this idea of like what most people need is not knowledge, but leadership, Uh, you know, like, And it's like the, the idea that is like knowledge is now becoming commoditized, right? You can go and acquire it, but how much energy can you put into something? You know, yeah. it's all about, uh, it's about controlling your energy now. Like I want to get really good at this thing. 
um, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to focus on this or I need to learn this. I just need somebody yes. who I trust who can perform this for you. me. Yes. And uh, one of the real cool things with fintech and these softwares and these tools is a verification layer, right? Yeah. They can remove the, 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 the trustless layer of needing to verify somebody or having a place or having to perform the task of being like, am I going to the right source or going to that? It's like, yeah. you know, a, a machine can help you, uh, you know, decide that for you if you can, yeah. you know, as long as uh, the, the system is there for it. Well, and then for women specifically, um, there's a lot of language implications when it comes to finance. And the industry itself is very male-dominated. 85% of financial advisors are male. And in and around the language of money, there's this idea and concept that women are frivolous. Like, we label women spend as frivolous. No one labels a man who wants to buy a really expensive, um, you know, stereo equipment no one deems that frivolous. That's discerning. Mm. But a woman who gets her nails done, that's frivolous. The problem with that is women are highly represented in service markets where having your nails done is sometimes written into your employment contract. So you have on one hand, you have these financial advisors looking through your spend and saying, oh, you, you, know, you're, you should cut out these unnecessary costs. And, and they're judging people. Mm. And then on the other hand, we know that women who put a lot of money into the way they look earn higher levels of income. So you have this disconnect between how the information is being told and the reality of the person in that life. And I think um, that's just one soft side of, of leadership not occurring in the financial services industry and um, not understanding their user base well. Uh, yeah, I think uh, you pointed uh, that really. Uh, that's a really great example of talking about a misalignment, right? Yeah. And a, a great display of leadership because that is literally is understanding who you're actually leading. It's based up on a deeper level of understanding than the, a surface level check in the boxes of this is what you should be doing kind of service. Yeah. And you know, one of the great things about technology is that it brings what was once available only to the upper class or the upper echelons. Yes. To the masses, right? G- 100%. Gives you the power of distribution, uh, lowers the cost of entry, and removes barriers. Yes. So, I mean, what does it look like? You know, um, can you give us an analog of what yes. a rich person would have had twenty years ago, and what yeah. uh, an average person can do now with technology? Absolutely. I mean, I think the best example is robo advisors, mm. um, and, and quite frankly, um, we've known for years that eighty percent of financial advisors do not beat the benchmark. Partially that's due to fees. Like the actual advisors do beat the benchmark, but then after fees, they don't. Um, But we know that 80% of the time they don't beat beat the benchmark. And they're charging you in order to not beat beat the benchmark. And this is over a 10-year time horizon. So there are some that can do it two or three years in a row, but not over a 10-year time horizon. So you can go to a robo-advisor. You can get like top shelf investment um, portfolios and you can get it for 0.5% or 0.35% I think is the cheapest one in Canada right now um, and that enables you to get a diversified portfolio so ETFs are another revolution but um, a diversified portfolio which used to cost a fortune because you used to have to pay for each stock that or bond that you wanted to put into your basket so now you just buy into a portfolio um, they do. They can do automatic rebalancing, so you're not getting overweighted in any sort of um, stock or any field. And so this was all available to high net worth individuals before. I think they even do tax loss harvesting now at a certain level of service. 
Um, and this was all available for high net worth clients before. And now it's available to the public for a very reasonable price. Um, and I think another analog is what we're trying to do. You know, there's the free blogs and low cost apps available now. But for a certified financial planner who's fee for service, who will, who doesn't have sort of these back pocket arrangements where they're getting incentivized to sell you certain things. I think sometimes they still are in Canada, which is a problem. But um, in the States, certainly CFPs are fiduciary, meaning they have responsibility to doing what's best in the best, a legal responsibility for doing what's in the, your best interest. Mm-hmm. Um, that costs between $1,500 and $3,500 to get a plan from them. That is still, in my mind, available to the rich. You know, you need you need to revisit your plan. Anytime you project that far into the future, it's it's filled with assumptions. It's directional at best. You need to be able to afford to do this every one to five years. And at fifteen hundred to thirty five hundred, the average Canadian probably won't want to spend that. Mm-hmm. I was speaking to a uh, wealth manager, you know, uh, mm-hmm. last year, and talking about the pandemic and you know what has that done to wealth, you know. Yes. And, uh, you know, he works at a, a private firm, a particular firm that only deals people who have a network of $10 million plus, you know, yeah. uh, yep. they, you know, they take over and they plan, uh, plan for it, have yearly reviews, uh, quarterly meetings, uh, monthly updates of where all the melt, wealth uh, lies. And the aspect is that, you know, uh, technically, if you're in this class of people, it's very, very uh, hard for you to go broke. Uh, yes. Because you yes. have such a, such a support mechanism, yes. right around you, right? And in fact, you know, you was telling me about this one factor that, that really blew my mind. It's throughout Canada. It's about, it's like when you're in this wealth category, uh, what you do is you, you go out and buy assets. Some of them are failing assets. But just because you own these assets, uh, there'll be these liquidity events where the government will literally bail you out uh, hmm. when there's a recession. Every 10 years, 20 years, there's a recession or a big liquidity event that happens, like a black swan event. And suddenly all this money gets, uh, uh, gets freed up uh, from, you know, that gets created, it gets printed out and then given yeah. out to the asset holders. Yes. And I remember hearing that and I'm like, he's like, and he's like, that's what's happening right now with the pandemic, right? A trillion dollars has been printed out and given mostly to people who have assets in a way to, way to spur job creation and, and to uh, spur all this economic activity. Yeah. Well, you saw that in the last, during the financial crisis, you know, mm-hmm. the, the Fed, which is the American Central Bank printed an unprecedented amount of money for the first time in history that it's done it to that magnitude. And a lot of that money ended up in the stock market. Mm -hmm. So it's benefiting the people who own stock and stock wealth is concentrated, I believe roughly um, most held by the the top 20% of, of net income holders. So that's another reason why we're focused on, democratizing yeah like putting it and helping people understand so we did we looked at something we looked at an alberta nurse average salary i think was 60 or a salary was sixty seven thousand dollars a year this could be um a Mm -hmm. bit bit off but that i think that was the numbers that we used and we looked at how much she would need for retirement um using the wealth simple calculator just because we wanted to use a third party um provider and it was two million dollars she was 25 so she needs to get $2 million in retirement. And there was, it was impossible for her to save her way to retirement. She couldn't, she just simply could not save enough money. I think it was most of her after-tax, if not more than more than all of her after-tax dollars in order to save her way up there. So you have to invest and you have to employ compound, in, like the rate, compound investment. And 
um, one of the ways in which, so human brains are not designed to understand uh, compound rates of return or exponential growth, which is what investing does for your money. But a way that you can see it today that is very applicable day to day is in COVID. It has an exponential growth rate um, and therefore it accelerates. So it, it's not linear. It doesn't grow in a straight line. It accelerates and it curves. So it's a bit of a morbid example, but it's very, um, press, like, very top of mind for everyone today. Yeah, uh, I, I personally love Wellsimple. Uh, Wellsimple yes, makes so much of my life so much easier because yes. you just park money there. Um, There's this great co- uh, quote that really changed changed the way I think about money: is that ten thousand dollars if you save it, uh, you know, save ten thousand dollars in cash uh, from the year two thousand. Now, twenty years later, that ten thousand be worth six thousand uh, yeah. dollars just because of inflation. So you're actually losing yep. power of value, right? So cash is a tool; it's not an asset. Cash is a is a is a tool. It's an exchange. It's an exchange of value, right? Uh, instead of trading sheep, we're trading paper, and yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's a, yeah, uh, yeah, right. And uh, now it's becoming uh, becoming um, you know cashless. We're moving to a cash society where things are more more ethereal, right? Mm-hmm. But because of that, things can be programmed. One of the things I love is I recently got an account with uh, Tangerine, uh, formerly yes. uh, yeah. yeah. So. They allow you to program money, almost like what Bitcoin is promising, right? You can have all these rules you can set for like, you know, every time I, I, I buy something at the bar, take a, you know, I'd take a dollar and put it into this yep. account. You can program money, right? Like that just changes um, how you, your relationship with capital, right? I so, love the round up ones where mm. they, you know, they round everything up to a dollar and put in savings. There's, there's some really fantastic tools. There's even savings goals tools where you get rewarded. They, they, I think it's Cooper. They reward, they spend their marketing dollars on rewards. So instead of marketing, they put all that money into rewarding you for reaching your financial uh, savings target. So let's say you make it to a hundred dollars. They'll give you $5 on top of that. That's 5% rate of return for saving up money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's incredible. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, going to this, right, like um, uh, going back to the, the financial model, like the, the, uh, what's happening right now and how people can kind of uh, model themselves better, right? Like the Great Depression, you know, we, we think about the bread lines and like everything going up, but the Great Depression created more millionaires in America than any point in history, right? Yeah, isn't that fascinating? Isn't that crazy? Like, yeah. you know, we think about the people who's, who are like in the streets, but one third of people actually did phenomenally well. Yeah. Uh, one third had no effect at all. They continued their lifestyle, right? And they maintained yeah. uh, everything that going on. One third completely had a, dra- a drastic drop in lifestyle, and uh, one third went, went did really well. And what we really saw yeah. was like it just it just spread the equality index, right? Like uh, between the, the haves and have-nots. It's and, been growing ever since. Yeah, and it's been growing ever since. And, and more liquidity events have happened. Each recession kind of does this, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do we use technology to kind of uh, you know? bring down that gap how do we prevent yeah. people who are losing from losing too much yeah uh, and, and you know and not necessarily capping the people who are gaining but like just making it so that everyone has access because oftentimes it's because of, because of access you know you're yes. you know you are close to a point of knowledge or, or point, uh, you know have a relative or someone who can actually advise you or tell you what to do or do this yes. buy, you know buy that property at this age yeah. you know spend your money here you know do, do this to save right so how do we make, make society more equal using technology yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have developed Untangle Money's product the way we have. Mm. It's because we really want people to understand 
money and how it works um, without having any bias. So we don't sell you anything. We only sell you the financial plan and it's cheap. It's $35. Um, and, and it enables you to see how you can get from today to where you're going, how you can leverage investing, how investing in higher. One of the, the other thing about, so words are really, are, can be very gendered. Um, there was this cool Australian sub, um, study that looked at replacing the word negotiate with the word ask. Um, and when they use the word negotiate, I'm just going to get my notes here. 59% of men negotiated for a higher salary and only 70% of women within the study negotiated. But when they changed, so this, this phrase was many people negotiate for more. Mm-hmm. But when they changed it to many people ask for more, 73% of men negotiate or ask for more, which was a big jump for them. And 69% of women. So you had only a four point spread between men and women just simply by change and a jump in the men as well, just by changing the word negotiate to ask. And where this applies to something that I see a lot is when it look, when you look at risks of portfolio. So women tend to have an average weighted return of four and a half percent on their investments. And the advisors will put them in higher concentration of bond portfolios. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with being in a, in a portfolio that you're comfortable with. But the thing that I want to see is I want women to understand, yes, a 6% return portfolio, they're usually deemed aggressive, which is not a word that we like um, or a lot of women like. A 6% return has a meaningful impact on your investment portfolio and and performance and how much money you'll have at the end of the day. And I want women to have the ability to stop and, and weigh the risk of losing some of their money to volatility in the stock market in a diversified basket, which shouldn't, shouldn't underperform for the long term. You're not going to lose all your money forever unless the whole world goes to hell in a handbasket. And it didn't happen with COVID and it didn't happen with the financial crisis. So it probably won't happen. Um, you can't say that with certainty, but um, <laughs> some degree of certainty. But then on the other hand, weighing the risk of not having enough money in retirement and underfunding your retirement. We know that women as a, as a gender are the, they, they go in below the poverty line. They enter poverty in retirement of the most of anybody else. So they are overrepresented in, in of the poor in retirement. And it's because they outlive their money because mm-hmm. they were in these safe portfolios that didn't generate enough assets. Um, and then if it's okay, I just wanted to drill, is it okay if I drill into how women and men are different? Yo, absolutely, please. <laughs> okay. So I printed these out because I, I didn't see a share mm. screen. But okay. so here you can see men and women have, this is like how women's money goes over time, okay. right? So we start out the same. It, it doesn't show it. But here we have maternity leave and here we have elder care responsibilities. And so what happens, and we work part time and our income peaks earlier, and this one's actually scarier. So, oh, it's hard to see. Yeah, I mean, there is a share screen if you uh, if you have oh, the file. Oh, is there? I yeah. do have the file. Yeah. So, so at the bottom uh, and the bottom, um, it should be a screen share button next to. Do you see the screen. camera? The mic? Is your share screen? I can share the screen. This is amazing. Um, can I? Maybe I can't. Yeah, let me check. You should 100% have that. Um, I have the camera. It's just asking me what I want to share. Security and privacy. Mm. All right. 
I'm going to go back to the, I'm old, so I'm going to go back to, <laughs> back to this form. So, oh, it doesn't show up well. Can you see, you can see this graph here. This is Owen. Mm -hmm. And this graph is Sandra. Mm -hmm. So this is when Sandra turns 40. So I'm older than Sandra. Mm. And you can see this decline in how much Sandra makes. These, these are aggregate numbers. And then you can see Owen, he, his income doesn't peak till he's around 55. But mm -hmm. Sandra's peaks in and around 40. And this difference, this is what men can do. This is why men can start saving for retirement when they turn 40 and why women cannot wait. Because they don't have the extra 10 to 50. You can't see the scale. Yeah, yeah. This is about 15000 maybe $20,000 at the biggest dollars a year that they can put into oh, the wow. invest into investments and so what happens from that it all culminates into the wealth gap so for every dollar a man has in wealth a woman only has 32 cents hmm. so we talk a lot about the pay gap and you know you see you saw that peak and that's the glass ceiling effect women just aren't going up in their careers the same way as men but that culminates this whole like not putting enough into investments, not getting paid enough, not being able to fund our retirement later, culminates in this wealth gap. And then we live longer and we got 32 cents on the dollar to do it with. So that's why we focus on women. Christine, that was, that was really amazing because uh, we hear a lot about the wealth gap as an occupational almost like an occupational yeah. hazard. It's like, yeah, yeah. you're in this occupation and why aren't you making this? But I, th I think the way you kind of put it is like, yeah, this is productivity uh, and uh, what you get in return for productivity uh, and, you know, especially the age of that. So why is it that that uh, productivity, like do, uh, do women after 40, do they, are they retiring early? Uh, is it? We're, so I think it's partially the glass ceiling, right? We're not, you, when you look at the upper echelon of companies, the higher up you go, the more male dominated they uh -huh. are. Um, I think women tend to go into industries that pay less to begin with. Um, and then women take career gaps. We, we have, we're more likely to take maternity yeah. leaves and we more, we're more likely to take, um, elder care responsibilities. So as our parents and our partner's parents age, we're more likely to work part time. So I think the peak at 40, um, is a culmination of all those things. It's a little bit too old to be completely, uh, dependent on, childbearing years because it's really hard to have kids in your 40s yeah. <laughs> um, and most women do have them in like late 20s early 30s so it's not quite tied to that but mm -hmm. there's something happening there so I, my my sense is that it's more to do with the glass ceiling and you still have 25 years of work after that right so yeah. peaking at 40 is pretty disheartening yeah it's crazy because um you know uh one of the one of the the ideas that I think uh, I'm, I'm coming to terms with is the idea of, of uh, how to conceptualize time in, in, in relation yeah, to like yeah. what I want in my life, right? Yes. Um, when you're in your 20s, you're such a, in like this, like, I feel like you're such a, like, a, putting a grinder. Like, I have to figure myself yeah. out. I have to be in a place because otherwise, if I do it now, I'll never achieve it because I wouldn't have time. Yeah. Until you like pass into your 30s and suddenly it's like, wait, I still have time. There's still yeah, time to figure time. things out. Right. And, <laughs> and, uh, I think one of the craziest facts, like, I think your graph there really explains it really well, but your peak production period, uh, income producing pretty at your, your, your peak productivity return for productivity is actually in your forties and fifties. Only right? if you're a man. Mm. Apparently. It's not true for a woman, right? Mm -hmm. She peaks at 40. Yeah. Yeah. 
So her ability to earn income, it shifts your whole mind. And so I have on here, it says the financial services industry is failing women. I think it's true. Yeah. No one's telling them that they need. So here's a, I think you'll like this one because it is, it is a play on time and it's a mental model you can hold. You may not like it because I, I su- suspect you're not in your twenties anymore, but no. there's still thirties, early thirties, early thirties. Wonderful. So a hundred dollars invested at 25 can turn into $1,000 by 65. So mm-hmm. 10 times at a rate of return of 6.1% after fees. Mm. Right? So that's that's an exponential curve. $100 invested right in the middle at 45 where I am, invested until 65 at the same rate of return, only turns into $300. So less than a third. Mm. So for women, if you peak at 40 you're going to make, want to make, be making sure that you're investing that whole time. Whereas men, you can take that gap, that sort of $20,000 a year, turn it into three times your money and still be okay. Mm-hmm. So, yes, your peak years are ahead of you. Mine are well behind me. Oh, my God. So it's, 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 it, if you don't look at the underlying data, you're going to make a product that makes assumptions that don't work. So the financial service industry, and I think we as humans kind of align with this. It's just probably why they've gone with it. Mm-hmm. We sort of hit 40 and you're like, oh, retirement, mm-hmm. right? You have your, you, you figured out how you want to live. You figured out your lifestyle. You've probably had children if you want them. Men can do it a little later. Women, you know, outside of adoption are probably settled in that realm. And you hit 40 and you're kind of like, oh, I got to save for retirement. I don't want to work forever. For women, it's a little bit too late. Not too, it's never too late. I just, I really want to impart upon women that if you haven't figured out how to work it in before 40, it's only going to get harder. Hmm. I, I mean, that, that's concerning because uh, I mean, going back to what I was saying about you keep performing years in your 40s and 50s, the reason for that, uh, you know, they say is because you've had 20, 30, 40 years of learning. Right? It's the exponential growth on your learning. Yeah, on your learning, right? You're developed really uh, on your skill sets. You maybe had uh, one, uh, you know, two, three career changes. You have had time to yes. adjust into into growing career, career paths and, you know, adopt knowledge. You can knowledge. see things, right? Things become interrelated as you get older and you see patterns of familiarizations. You can kind of, you've, you've seen enough success stories and horror stories in your own time that aren't yeah. your parents' generation telling you. Yeah. yeah. I, I totally believe that. Yeah. And it's one of the main reasons why, uh, I think like, I think 72% of billionaires, um, are, so 92% of billionaires are first generation wealth, meaning they made money in their lifetime. Um, you know, and I, I think 72 and 72% of them, uh, make majority of their money, not, not even like, you know, the, like majority of the money in their forties and fifties. And, you know, and based off your stats, no wonder they're men because they're the ones in uh, playing that market, right? They're in that game. Um, So it's like, you know, how how do we solve this? Is this a a cultural thing? You know, you talk about the glass ceiling and that's been like a discussion for 30 plus years, right? Remove the glass ceiling in corporate, right? And, uh, you know, so where are we right now? Is is it still the glass ceiling effect? Is it uh, a cultural effect? Yeah. So the, you know, the, the pay delta right now, they, it depends on where you look, but a pretty confident estimate is 87, sorry, yeah, 87 cents on the dollar. Women are paid 87 for equal pay. Mm-hmm. What that doesn't take into account is the fact that women work in women-oriented industries tend to make less money. So an, a really, a really um, applicable one for this is um, computer work used to be deemed secretarial, and it was 
awash with women. Ada Lovelace was the first hmm. computer programmer. Um, it was a fe- deemed a female occupation. Um, and even during the war, when men went off to war and women took their jobs, they were paid, you know, I think mm-hmm. 20 cents on the dollar yeah. purposely mm-hmm. um, for the same work. And, and while you're not legally allowed to do that anymore, when a, a, when a job is deemed feminine, society seems okay with paying them less. Um, whereas then when a job becomes masculine, such as the development for computers, suddenly you see an increase in, um, in pay. And the problem with this is something we talked about sort of earlier was, is, is the network and flywheel effect. You know, women tend to know women more so than, um, or even equally. So if you're more likely to go into jobs where you feel comfortable and and you feel welcomed, so you're going to go into female occupations and they're paid less. So Mm. that's, I think, the first problem. Then we're paid less for the equal work that we do. Then we take time off. The part, the problem with time off is so it, and it's not really time off having been a mom, um, or being a mom. It's certainly not a year off that I thought I was getting. Yeah. It was a lot of work, but um, but we take career gaps. And what happens is I'm not. I didn't contribute to my company pension at the time I was employed, and I also didn't earn CPP. I wasn't contributing to CPP, so my corporate pensions and my government pension allowance will be lower as well. So there's a whole. How do you solve it? Um, the way we look at it is. You got to start early. Mm-hmm. You got to invest more than we do right now. Women are much better at saving than investing, and there are some implications. There are some reasons for that. And then we need to invest in higher return portfolios. So we need to put more into stocks. It's the biggest generator of wealth of our time. The biggest generator of wealth that we have access to. Real estate's another one, but I think it's less accessible for most people. Um, so it's an ability to own assets that can grow. So we need to put more concentration in there, which is the exact opposite of what the financial industry tells women. Because mm. it tells them they're conservative. It tells them they want to be careful with their money, and then they put them into bonds. Yeah. But those are the three things we think women need to do. Yeah. Um, there was another person who came on a podcast, and it was talking about alternative uh, investing uh, for mm-hmm. women, right? And yes. one of the things she was po- pointing out is like, you know, you talk about the frivolous activities or what's seen to be feminine is like weaker or, or somehow inferior. Yeah. And she's talking about how like, you know, her her and her friends like desire to buy like $50,000 handmade bags and, yes. you know, like these high-end uh, items. And yeah. everybody always sees it like, oh, like, why would you put your money in there? Why aren't you buying mm-hmm. stock? Or like, you know, their male counterparts would be like, yeah, I would yeah. put that in a Bitcoin. I would do this. I would buy a car. I would do that. You know, yeah. and like I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy that. And she's like, yeah, but these are, she's like, what most people are not understanding is that these are designer buy items. They're collector items. They're oftentimes, uh, you know, boutique. And in 10 years, they're actually going to be worth more. Right. Yeah. So a lot of like there are women who, yeah, they'll you take them and utilize them in the handbag. But really, they're collecting them and keeping them. And yeah. they're like, just like buying art. It's like a way yeah, of storing I, value. So my favorite alternate, like they often say in finance, in the financial realm that you should, that you shouldn't speculate, mm-hmm. right? That you should keep your investing and your speculation money differently in different buckets. But if you are going to speculate, my favorite way to, so I, I would suggest Bitcoin as a speculation. Yes, it is a new technology. Yes, it's probably not ever going to go away. But it's hard to determine the right value. So unless mm-hmm. you should buy it when it's low if you're going to buy it. Do not buy it when everybody else is buying it. Wait till it crashes. Mm-hmm. It's probably not going to go anywhere, but it's probably going to go up in value later. So, um, But 
if you are going to speculate, my favorite place to speculate is on art. Mm. Why? Because if it resonates with you and you like it, it's going to beautify your home. We know that a lot of good things happen to our brain when we're surrounded by beautiful items. Um, there's a fabulous podcast I just listened to that talks about how it has a significant decreaser on the stress of your brain. It, it makes you less scared, which I thought was fabulous. Soft surfaces and art that you like. Wow. Um, I've, I've actually not heard that. Can you, yeah, can you elaborate? I find you, it, yeah. Yeah, it was, I was just listening to it, and it talked about how if you suffer from anxiety, you should really try to make your space have soft edges. So even, even square corners um, elicit this sort of fight-or-flight response from us, which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, interesting from an architectural point of view. I happen to really like a lot of elegant yeah. or, like, these square corners, but, um, but it, it was really interesting. I'll find the link, and I'll... I'll send it to you it's a fascinating listen but so having fl fresh flowers in your space actually yeah. can have a measurable impact on your um on your on your well-being which i don't know so i like art because you, you're investing in it yeah you um you're gonna like it so it's gonna beautify your home and then hopefully it goes up so it's a great use of that speculative budget if you have one no, uh, Christine, I think you solved a big issue for me personally, because me, my, because after the pandemic, you know, my, me, and my wife have always had been to each other about, you know, she wants to completely redo the house. You know, we actually bought, uh, we moved into a brand new, uh, development uh, a week before the pandemic was called. Oh my goodness. Our furniture was delayed for like three months. Like we were like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like Glamping we like, at its finest. <laughs> basically, right. We're like substance living. So she, she's like, you know, she wants to change this. She, she, uh, you know, she wanted to get all this stuff. And I'm like, yo, let's wait. I mean, the world, uh, we don't know what's going to happen right now. Like we should be conservative. We should, you know, have liquidities in case, uh, we should, in, you know, invest in like, you know, in third party markets, like, you know, buy gold. I don't know. Right? Yes. Yes. You know, and like, why are we spending? And, uh, you know, and the conflict was, she's like, you know, uh, we know we're going to be here. Might as well make it nice. So we ourselves are comfortable. We, we, you know, we feel like, you know, we're in a positive space. And she was talking about the psychological point of view. Where I was talking about yeah. like the the physical sense of like you know what safety means and you know yeah. uh, you know having that kind of thing. So, and the conflict there was uh, you know in what um, you know what the goals were, right? Yeah. So it's going back to like uh, you know going going back to the billionaire status, right? One of the main indicators as well, crazy enough, I think it was sixty three percent of billionaires accounted a successful marriage to their wealth accumulation. Right? Huh. I well, yeah, because one of the best ways to damage your finances is to get divorced. Yeah, it's the but most expensive both, thing. Both men and women, and yeah. and and contrary to popular belief, it it negatively impacts women far more than the yeah. men. Yeah, so it's the greatest destruction of wealth is uh, mm -hmm. you experience is, is a divorce, and the greatest creation of wealth is a successful marriage, and yeah. the idea being the pairing of two minds and goal sets come together to figure figure out problems, and yeah. you know one, one of the crazy things is that uh, you know we we you know talking about the, the 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 gap you're talking about is like men earn more. One of the reasons they're able to earn more and do more is because women kind of fill in another gap in part of their life, take care of different yeah. things. In the yeah. older age, in, in a different age, it was like they're taking things at home, paying the bills. You know, handling yeah. all the side of things where all the man has to do is like focus on income and 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 uh, and, uh, and stress, right? So working yeah. in that dichotomy. Now it's more about partnerships. Like I make you this, I mean, you make that. How do we work in partnership to get to that? There's this great story uh, about uh, the, it was a I think an insurance salesman um, who became um, one of like the highest. He hit a, 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 a hallmark like the the most amount of insurance sold uh, in a year, and yeah. uh, he you know in a year, and he did it um, you know in his first year. 
Yeah. And a, a month in into him, when he started the job, uh, he got hit by a car and became paraplegic. Right? Oh uh, you know, he's completely, you know, could not move from the neck down, quadriplegic, sorry. And his wife actually quit her job, took care of him, and then drove him to all his appointments, sat wow. in the restaurants while, you know, while he was having meetings, his highlight meetings, because he, he, you know, he was that good. Like, you know, and, and he ended up making like, you know, uh, I think some crazy amount of figure, like $3 million, $4 million in sales that year. Wow. You know, um, mostly, you know, I'm, I'm sure like, you know, be, you know, be, be, having a salesperson who's quadriplegic will have like influence, right? Yeah. But he was on, able on to do need, it. And your need for insurance. Right? Yeah. She um. literally wheeled him everywhere, took him all that. And together, like he took the claim. Like under yeah. his name, he got $3 million, but they went up on stage together and he attributed all the value. It's like, no, we did this together, right? Yeah. And it's like that, yeah. that duo couple, right? Uh, and, and oftentimes you see like the, the, uh, one of the things like women take behind the stage kind of scenes. Yeah. They, they run the empire while the men uh, rule the empire, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah. It's so interesting you say that because I spent five years, um, I was working at RBC. I looked at equities, or sorry, I looked at price. Um, the prices of stock for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I lived in England, my husband also worked in capital markets. So we both worked in the finance industry. Um, and we had a lot of friends where they were, you know, real power couples, right? You had a pair of lawyers, uh, barristers. Um, you had, you know, one was on the rise in public health and the other one was a big shot at Morgan Stanley. Um, and you had these these couples where they could they could both really fight for their success. Hmm. Um, and, and they also had, you know, they had parental leave before we did in Canada. They had, um, and they just had a different concept of work-life balance. They, you know, even the finance industry, they didn't work as hard as they didn't, sorry, it's not that they didn't work as hard. They didn't work as inefficiently and have to put in as much face time as we do in Canada. And Hmm. I would, and you know, the joke is Toronto's trying to be New York when it comes to finance, you know, they're, New York's taking it to the extreme. Toronto's sort of trending that way. And and England never really bought in the same way. And I'm not saying the hours weren't long. They're just not as long. So you had these couples where they could both pursue their career. And then when we moved back to Canada, it really felt like that extended FaceTime, that extended idea that you didn't have anything outside of work, that you didn't have families, meant that we really had to shore up resources behind one person. So it's in your best interest in North America, in that culture, to have someone take a step back and and support the other person so that that person has the the power and velocity of two people behind them, sh- like pushing them, thrusting them up. You So you can't do it. You can't have pe- two people doing it on their own. And that's a problem because the person who's likely to have a higher salary is the man. In all else being equal, it just is. So the woman yeah. here is more like, and we, you actually saw it play out with the she session of COVID-19. Who went, who left the workforce? Women in mm-hmm. droves. They left the workforce because it was no longer possible to fake having a career with little kids in the background, right? Running around in the, mm-hmm. so they needed someone to have a, a salary and in a typical, you know, marriage where it's a man and a woman, not, you know, with two women, it'd be, it'd be a different conversation, like who takes the lead. Um, but with a man and a woman, it's almost default always the men. And women are becoming more and more the breadwinners. And yet we still saw this, the pandemic adversely affect 
more women than men. So while I applaud this woman for supporting her husband and I applaud all these billionaires that have supportive wives, you know, and actually um, Sheryl Sandberg, after her husband passed, mm-hmm. talked about how she would never would have been able to do it if her husband hadn't taken up all yep. that slack and put yep. all that effort behind her career. You know, I actually think we, sh- we all need to lean out so that we can all be successful, regardless of whether we have a partner shoring us up. So I have a very supportive partner, but he's certainly not going to drop everything to help me build the untangled money empire. I have to build it on my own you know, sort of inconveniently for him, I'm also not going to drop untangle money to shore up his career either. But I, I don't know. I think that's a really interesting, um, interesting stat. And, and from my point of view, less, less exciting perhaps um, than from male point of view. Yeah. Sorry about that. That's Some okay. Like, like Google Home started playing uh, some random, uh, random uh, lyric that was creepy as hell. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. I probably said something to set it off. I don't know what's happening there. Um, yeah, sorry. So yeah, going back to this, um, uh, to this, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I mean, people, um, you know, coming together um, and and being able to like support each other while also doing their own thing. I think that it's very important. Really uh, important, right? So sorry, like um, you know, I'm getting conscious more of time here. It's kind of yes, blew, yes, blew, we're running out. Blew through this, right? So let's talk, uh, you know, uh, about the Untangled platform and Untangled sure. Money platform, and what does that mean? Like, you know, what does the future look like uh, w- with your solution in place? Yeah. So right now we have we have the mini, which is we take uh, your after tax dollars and we divide them into five categories, only two of which you give us. Um, we want we're interested in your minimum debt. And your cost of living. So that cost of living is, you know, in business parlance, it's fixed costs. But what we tell our users, it's, it's money that you've committed to spending year over year, month over month, day over day. Money that you, you'd have to take action to change. You'd have to cancel your subscription. I'm really worried about the newest generation and their subscription usage because I think it really erodes the money that they should be putting into investing. So we take that, we take your committed money and we project it into the future using a 2% inflation rate. And then we look at it for 30 years, retire at 65 until 95. Women live longer than men. You can ask us to reduce it. We can make it any length you want, but the, the default is 30 years. And then we figure out how much money you need. And then we look at that. We put back into your budget how much um, retirement investing you need. And sometimes we won't let your flexible money go below 20% because you need to eat. Uh, we don't put food price or food costs fluctuate, birthdays, special occasions. Um, sometimes you're in your ramen days and you don't eat as much. So we, we separate that out um, from your committed money. But we look at how much you have the capacity to invest and we predict how much that's going to end up and look at what the difference is. And then we start looking at things like well, what happens if you increase your rate of return? What happens if you lower your cost of living by $100 a month? $100 for me at my age is equivalent to $50,000 in retirement need. So to, to serve as a $100 monthly cost for 30 years for me is $50,000. So every time I can reduce my monthly spend by $100, I can reduce the amount I need in retirement by $50,000. So we just, we show you these, and it changes by your age, right? Because of that, because of that investment curve. So you know the, the change isn't as meaningful um, 
depending on what, what how old you are. But um, yeah, so we show like the implications of that. We look at what happens when inflation increases. You know, all of a sudden, instead of needing $2 million to retire, you need $4 million. Just to give you a sense of, and we're not trying to doomsday anything. We're just trying to give you a sense of what the le- levers are, what you can control, and then and and what you can change. And we also look at your flexible money. So we leave twenty percent of your take home money for flexible spend, and we break it down by day, week, and month. Um, and I think I said at the beginning that the two questions that women have about money is, can I afford it, and will I be okay? So the first part I described answers, will I be okay in retirement? And if not, what could that look like um, if it doesn't look exactly like it does today? And the second part, can I afford it? Well, we are looking at your after-tax dollars, how much flex money you have per day. And you can say you can say in relative terms, if I have $20, I can spend a day, maybe $10 after my grocery costs um, are accounted for. Then I can look at an item and say, is this what I want to spend the next eight days uh, on, right? I can say, I have $10 a day. I need to wait eight days to make this purchase. Is that worth it for me? No judgment. doesn't matter. Maybe I want to go three months saving up those $10 and, and, and buying something that's really important to me. But it helps me. It gives me an actual tool I can use day to day and think, can I afford it? What am I willing to forego? And how, you know, it gives you, it can tell you about those trade-offs. So that's what we do. And it's $35. That's a lot of value for $35. That's, yes. that's amazing. Christine, uh, you know, thank you so much for your time. You know, I feel like I learned a lot and somehow I have more questions. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, you know, um, I'd love to have you back on in another six months and uh, you know, dive deeper into this because I, I feel like Absolutely. the financial landscape is like is shifting so much underneath us and uh, there's a lot uh, I think it can help us digest. So thank you so much for coming on. That would be wonderful. Yeah, we're grow- our product, um, that's just the mini. We do have a master plan which puts in things like um, maternity leaves or IVF payments, but we've stopped working on it for a bit just so we can focus on uh, automating our mini. So I'd love to come back. Thank you for having me. Perfect. Thank you so much. And for everyone who tuned in, thank you. Great.